Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a super exciting founder. I think that we're going to be learning a lot, you know, especially from her experience, you know, being part of the Internet from the early days where everything was booming, uh, and especially from the Bay Area. So I guess uh, without further ado, Mariah Finley, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So originally born and raised in a small town in Texas. How was that? It's a very different life than uh, being an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, but uh, really lucky. Grew up in Texas in a small town. My mom was a teacher, and uh, it was an incredible place to grow up. I mean, but my life really changed when I got into Stanford and was exposed for the first time to computer science and entrepreneurship. And uh, I, you know, I there's many things I'm thankful for in life, but having that opportunity is was really life-changing. I'm exceptionally thankful for it. And I want to talk about that in just a little bit. But one thing that, that I always see, you know, in, in founders is that the way that they grew up, you know, really shapes their way of being, you know, their leadership skills and, and then also how they see, you know, whatever adversity is in front of them. And, and I understand that obviously you were raised by a single mother. So I'm sure that that had a, a big part on, on, on you, you know, and, and who, you're, who you are today. It did. You know, I was raised um, by a single mom who's a teacher. So we we were, you know, we definitely didn't have a lot of money, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, and it was really clear to me from an early age that doing well in school was pretty much the only way out of for me. Like we didn't have enough money to afford college. So, you know, I did I had to do really well to get into Stanford. And even when I got there, the urge to just like, I was so scared they would send me home, basically, <laughs> that the urge to do just really well and push really hard um, was sort of cemented in me at an early age. And just not to give up, like, just because you're bad at something. Like, I was even talking to my nine-year-old last night. And he's like, Mom, I'm not good at it. And, you know, I had to tell him a story where, like, I showed up at Stanford and, like, I was failing the first physics test. And, like, the other students went to much better schools than I did, but I got a tutor and worked really hard and then ended up doing well in physics. But this notion that like you kind of have to fight for to do well and fight for opportunity was pretty early, pretty clear early in my life. Got it. So, Mariah, let me ask you this then. So how how did you choose Stanford? Why Stanford? Uh, 
Well, in part, Princeton and Harvard rejected me, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is a source of great humor in our family since my husband went to Princeton. (laughs) I, uh, no, I got into the big state schools in Texas, which were willing to give me a ton of money to go. Uh, and I, that's what I thought would happen. And I actually got rejected. And then like my Stanford letter was delayed for 48 hours. And then I finally got in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, and it's just, you know, how life is interesting. Like, I think if I'd actually got into Harvard, I probably would be a lawyer right now. Yeah. And the fact that I went to Stanford and ended up discovering computer science, which I didn't know anything about. And then I was in the first class of Stanford at this thing called the Mayfield Fellows, which are this entrepreneurial education thing that has actually had quite a lot of successes come out of it. Uh it turned me on at an early age that I could be a technologist. And in no way growing up did I even think that was possible. Um, I remember a funny experience in my intro computer science class at Stanford. Like all the boys were like, I've been programming my Atari since I was eight, you know? And it was, and I was like, I haven't done any of this stuff. <laughs> but I made a decision that like I didn't have the background they would, but I would just work harder than them and do better than them. Uh, and so for me, Stanford was actually, it gave me a lot of confidence and it inspired me to see a world I didn't even know existed. Very cool. And, and what was the time? I mean, what, what year we're talking about? Was this in 90, in the nineties, early nineties, right? Yeah, this was in the nineties. So I graduated with my undergrad in 96 and my master's in computer science in 97. And, you know, I teach a class to Stanford computer scientists now. I've been teaching the last five years on the side. And it's hard to imagine when you see the valley we live in now, but people were still going to big companies. Like you still went to Microsoft or Motorola, like going to a startup was quite rare back then. And so my very first job when I graduated, but the internet was just starting. So my first job out of Stanford was to work at Netscape. And Netscape was a crazy place to work. I mean, it was incredibly fun. It was full of incredible engineers, incredible incredible product people, uh, but it was a business under threat. And I have this belief that in many ways, our first job norms us to what we believe is like our sort of culture and how we approach things. And so Netscape was this company where we really made beautiful products and it was like a cult of engineering and ideas were aggressive and conversations were highly debated. I mean, it was a really aggressive culture and I I actually really liked it, Uh, but it was under threat and it was under threat because we built this browser. We were really proud of it. We were selling it and Microsoft made the browser free. So they took our entire business and they're like, uh, we're going to make it free. And we have like an army of engineers who's just going to build and build and build till we reach parity with you. And so um, it was an incredible place to grow up, as it were, because this notion that you need to innovate your product and you should never rest, like it could all be taken away from you, was a pretty critical part of the culture. So, Yeah, I remember those, that, that was the time of the internet browsing wars. And uh, I'm sure that this for you really, you know, gave you, gave you a lot of visibility into like, for example, like how to deal with adversity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm obviously Ben Horowitz was at Netscape at that time, and I'm a huge fan of his writing. And he writes about wartime versus peacetime CEO. And at Netscape, we were fundamentally at war. Like we were fighting to survive. And that feeling of sort of fighting to survive and we're all in it together. I mean, that's 
when I fast forward, that's part of why I love running startups. This notion that we're going to create something out of nothing and against all odds, make it work. Uh, and for better or worse, I thrive on that. Like I'm, I'm not meant for peacetime. Like I actually like the fight, you know. Very cool. And Netscape was acquired by AOL. And this was a really interesting point in time for you because you really got to learn how to be a manager. So what does being a manager look like? Yeah, it was an interesting time. I was probably 25 or 26 years old and quite geeky. Frankly, I had just come out of my computer science degrees. And all of a sudden, they put me in charge of a 20-person team of product managers, both in Mountain View and in Dulles. And every single person on my team was older than me, some like significantly older than me. And so I, it was a very, and I was running some of the coolest products in the world, like AOL Mail and AOL's Chat and AOL Homepages. Back when they were huge, they were the biggest in the U.S., maybe even globally. Um, but I was just like this little Hermione know-it-all running this team of people actually much older than me. And I quickly had to learn that like not everyone's wired like me. People have different goals and different ways they want to be communicated with. Uh, so it was, it was a really incredible opportunity to get to learn that at a really early age and to be able to work on some of these huge consumer offerings that were being used by like tons and tons of people. Got it. And then you chose to move to good technology. Why? Yeah. So during my time at uh, Netscape and AOL, there was a VP of engineering I worked with for most of that time. And he went and co-founded a company called Good Technology, which was a mobile company in the early 2000s. And he recruited me to join a few weeks later. Uh, and as he was joked, you know, his joke in recruiting was how long until you make the inevitably correct decision. So for me, it was really about following someone that I deeply believe in. Got it. And obviously, this was a company backed by Kleiner Perkins. So yes. probably, you know, at this point, you were starting to have some some insights now into the whole venture capital world. And and this was early on. We're talking about the early 2000s. I mean, the, the landscape now probably has nothing to do with the landscape that was back then. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would love to say I knew what I was doing and I chose to go to a venture back startup on purpose. But I think most of that would be a lie. I I mostly loved my head of engineering and he went to this company and I wanted to work with him again. And in while I've been exposed to entrepreneurship at Stanford, because I was part of this Mayfeld Fellow program, I don't think I really understood how it worked. Um, for me, I, I more feel lucky that there was someone I really wanted to work with. But when I was there, I learned a lot about it. About uh, And it was a really interesting time to be at a company. So this was in 2001. And so, you know, we love in the Valley, we've had a couple of big recessions. And 2001 was one of those. And so we were a well-capitalized startup, but in a recession. And so actually, when I look back on it, I'm not requesting a recession. I'm not. But boy, was it, it was a great time to build a team. You know, I was able to hire some amazing people who were so brilliant and so smart. And the company worked so hard. And uh, it was quite a gift to be able to build something in a time where it wasn't as frothy, frankly. Got it. And then, then basically your experience was, you know, an experience that really got you or gave you exposure to different departments and perhaps different segments. So that was PayPal and, and obviously, you know, what became eBay. So, so what were you doing here? 
Oh, and Eva, yeah. So after I left uh, Good Technology, I went to PayPal. And because I had done early mobile work, including hardware, software, and deals with carriers, uh, when I went to PayPal, my mission was to start PayPal Mobile. So and I know it's hard to believe now, but this was a time where there was no mobile offering for PayPal. So I had an amazing job where I got to look at what was going on in mobile all around the world, particularly inspired by Europe and Asia. And we built the first PayPal mobile offering and made it so you could use PayPal with your phone number and you could access it from all types of phones. And so uh, that's one of the products I'm really proud of. Because if you look now, obviously, PayPal Mobile is a huge part of the business. Uh, so that was an incredibly, uh, incredibly fun opportunity. And, and as you might imagine, you know, PayPal had just amazing people. So it was an incredible network of people they get to be close to. And there, I mean, now you call it, they call it the PayPal Mafia. So, I mean, obviously, the, <laughs> the culture and, you know, some of the people that came out of this experience are some of the most powerful and influential people in the in the tech world. So so why is that? Uh, I mean, I think PayPal, and I wasn't there at the very, very beginning, at the really, really early days, but I think they're just a great example of they, you know, they just hacked the system. They tried to figure out what the solution was. They figured out eBay was a channel. They just, they iterated and iterated to build a business and they were just really smart about it. Uh, so I really admire a, a lot of what they did. And this led to your biggest success today, you know, a chance where you've really had the opportunity to see the entrepreneurial journey, you know, when it comes to, to the full cycle. No? So, so tell us how you came up with, with the idea of Citrus Lane and how you brought it to life. Yeah, yeah. And before I went to Citrus Lane, I actually spent some time at eBay, running the eBay site and the categories. Yeah. Uh, but when I... After leaving eBay, I really wanted to start something. And uh, funnily enough, at that time, I was looking at either fashion or doing something for parents. Uh, and I had just had my second child. So I had a nine-month-old when I started Citrus Lane. And I was really interested in what was going on with parents. Um, so it's funny. I'm not actually even sure my first startup, I had such a big worldview of why it'd be a big market or why it would work. Uh, but it was really clear to me that um, it was a very personally inspired story. So I had had my first baby and I was surprised when it was time to figure out stuff for the baby that there weren't better resources for products. So I had asked all these people for their recommendations. So I had compiled like 30 people's product recommendations. And then I'd put them in this Google sheet and then I'd come back and augmented it like six and nine months later to say like, was this a useful product or not? So I had done that. And then I realized like people started having this spreadsheet that I had never known. It had gone viral and various people were using the sheet. And so it struck me that new moms, new dads and new moms are desperate. Like you really have this new precious baby and you want to pick something really important for that baby. And strangely, there wasn't very many good resources and I could see at the time that places like Babies Are Us, which is, you know, now bankrupt, places like Babies Are Us just didn't actually give you very good information. So it was this nugget of insight that caused me to start Citrus Lane. Um, and then as a product person, by which I mean product management, it's always interesting to me how your brand morphs. So for me, the inside of the business was very much about help parents learn like the very best developmentally appropriate products for children. 
And as we ran the business, we, I quickly learned a bunch of things I didn't know. Um, that one, there was this huge opportunity for brands, like moms wanted new brands, like they wanted to know cool wood toys, healthy organic sunscreen, and they cared deeply about that. And at the same time, brands were very willing to pay to be considered because they desperately needed distribution. And I think that was something I uncovered in running the business. Um, and then the other thing we really uncovered is that, you know, and it, most product things seem obvious afterwards, but weren't at the time, that it wasn't just that she wanted developmental help. It's that the early years of having a kid are full of joy, but they're also full of uh, sleepless nights and heartache and, you know, and lots of work. And so sending her something that made her feel happy every month and made her feel like a good mom, there was this huge emotional part of it that was a key part of the brand. So I'm really proud of what we accomplished there. And why, why did you go at it as a, as a solo founder? Um, you know, probably actually mostly because of the urge for speed. Like I had the idea. I was really excited about it. I went and raised a seed round from Greylock. And I just was kind of in a rush to get going. When I look back at, like, funnily enough, how little research I did before starting the company, you know, my second company, I did a lot of research. I kind of almost chuckle at myself, but I just was super excited about the idea and I wanted to get it moving. And then along the way, I brought in um, a CTO who I made a co-founder, but after I had already raised the money. Got it. So how did you guys, I mean, what was the, the way to make money here? Yeah, at Citrus Lane. Yeah. Yep. So the way we made money is mom paid us for the subscription for the boxes. So they were $30 a box. Um, and then we were able to deliver $45 of more or less value of merchandising, toys, books, food, um, utensils, things like that. But the reason, but we were able to deliver it at a like at 25 cents on the dollar because we would go to brands and say, Hey, we're running this huge distribution. And so what we called the keeper items, like a book or a toy, they would give it to us at cost. And at scale, they were making exclusive products for us. And then the consumable stuff like the food and the sunscreens, they would give it to us um, either for free or for a very low cost. And so, and it was a win-win because mom was getting product that she had never seen, like beautiful wood toys and really cool, like healthy silicon, like tableware. And the brands were discovering a mom, like a market, they were discovering consumers. And, you know, there were like five, three food brands that when they started working us, they were tiny. And at the end of our relationship, they had got into large-scale distribution and several of them actually got acquired. So uh, that's how we made the economics work. Very cool. And obviously, you guys, uh, as you were saying, you raised money from Greylock. You were scaling up the, the business nicely. But, uh, you know, like any, any journey, you have the highs and you have the lows. And you all of a sudden, you see in front of you a layoff happening. Tell us about this. Yeah. So I had raised money from Greylock. And I'd also raised my Series A from GGV, uh, who I adore. Um, and we had raised money and we started spending the money, right? And so I went out and hired a bunch of engineers. Um, we ended up doing, you know, we were doing two core things, the box and the ability to add to, to the box. But then we started this whole other initiative on our community because we had this really engaged community. And I looked up and we were actually just spending too much money, frankly. Um, 
So we ended up doing a layoff. And, you know, I often talk to founders about this. You know, people are so scared to do something like that. But I would say it was the smartest decision I ever made. We focused down to do one thing, one and a half things, uh, including some stuff. My board wanted me to do some stuff that I stopped doing. Um, Focused down, not a single person left. Even though, I, you know, I always think it's interesting, like if you were to financially look at it, you'd be like, well, this company is not doing as well as I thought. I should leave. But, you know, what I've learned is if you're really transparent with people, they're so committed to each other uh, and to working with your, like to the group dynamic of taking the mountain. So nobody left. And at the end of that nine months, we were quite close to cash flow break even. We had a series B term sheet and an acquisition offer. And, and what I would say about it is the focus is what got us there. Um, and in a startup, at least in the early stages, I think just having like incredibly crisp focus is the path to succeed. And then you just got to make sure you just don't spend too much money. Um, yeah. So I was really proud of what we accomplished. And I'm not sure if we could have done it if we hadn't have gone through the step of right-sizing for a minute. Like you almost needed it culturally and emotionally to force the clarity uh, to really execute the business, to get it to a really strong financial spot. And talking about that, you know, the when you do a layoff, I mean, the you know, the facts are the facts. I think that what really counts is how you deliver them, because obviously that's going to be having an impact on on the culture and the, the people that are going to be, you know, left, you know, to, to really pull things, you know, through and, and execute. So, so what was your lesson and how did you deliver the message? Yeah. Um, and this is one where, unfortunately, I spent so much time as a big company exec. I've actually gotten to experience doing layoffs a lot. But, um, but my theory on how to be a startup CEO is a theory of radical transparency. Um, and I think that's the foundation that allows you to make something like that happen. So, you know, when I think about, like, I feel blessed that people come to work every day and work so hard for this startup and Citrus Lane before it. And so I feel I owe them a duty of treating them like the shareholders they are. So the culture I've had in both companies is, you know, after every board meeting, I take the entire company through like, here's the board material. Here's exactly what, you know, except for comp and team matters, I take them through everything, including the financials. So this notion that like, we're really transparent and we're in it together is, is not something I waited for the layoff to do, but the notion that like, I will always tell you the God's honest truth about what we're doing here, I think is a really important part of the culture uh, for me. So. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen, you know, especially on the companies that end up getting a really nice outcome and, you know, that end up getting acquired and, you know, nice returns for investors and all of that good stuff is that they experienced, you know, a, a critical moment in time, a time where, it was like do or die type of thing. And it seems that this was that moment for, for Citrus Lane. So I guess, you know, what, what was the before and what was the after in terms of culture? Yeah, I, I actually think the culture before was, I mean, culture after was even better. Like it was more, um, the culture was always positive and people was transparent, but there's something about like we're on a mission. We're going to take the hill together. Uh, and in a weird way, like having to lay off people we cared about, like, cause you know, we, in, as part of the layoff, we laid off people that everyone loved and that were great, including I love them. And, 
then this notion that like you need, if you're going to do that, you need to make it count. And so like, we're going to get really crisp about our goals and there's going to be less goals and we're going to work together and fight the good fight to make sure we deliver them. Um, I find at least startups and, you know, I've also run really huge organizations. Um, and I think those huge organizations often stumble because they don't have enough focus. So in some ways, what I have found is you almost need a crisis to cause focus. Uh, and, and a startup focuses everything. You know, um, I often think of running a startup like scuba diving. You know, you have, and I love to scuba dive, but you have so much oxygen. And if you go down too long and you don't have enough oxygen, you're going to die. So you better, you're enjoying what you're doing, but you better pay attention to oxygen because that is what you have. And so for a startup, I think this notion that like, we're under existential threat and we have to show focus to accomplish what we want is actually very motivating. And it forces the organization to choose focus. And, you know, when I reflect back, like at times I was at big companies and they often struggled, it was because we didn't choose our bets wisely enough. We didn't pick, we didn't make hard enough decisions. So I guess what does then focus at its best look like? Um, it varies at different stages of companies, I would say. But when I think about like series A and series B companies, like if you're doing more than one, one and a half veins, it's probably too much. And then focus means both knowing what you say yes to, but it really means knowing what you say no to. Um, it, an organization has a really hard time, I think, holding more than one or two goals in their head. Like, and you need your organization to have those goals so they can make decisions by themselves. Got it. Got it. So then, so then here, you know, one thing that is really amazing is that after going through, through all this uh, time, you know, like uh, obviously lay the layoffs, now the culture, you know, is uh, the best it has ever been, you know, at Citrus Lane, uh, you guys finally end up with a Series B term sheet and then also with an acquisition. How did this happen? Because typically you know, you either go for the acquisition or you go for the uh, financing round. But here you end up with, with both possibilities. Yeah. And, and that was actually a fairly explicit decision. Like I wanted to make sure the company had the very strongest shot. And it, had it was very clear to me that having leverage was a really good way to get there. And so for me, there were a few things that were important to me. One is to get the business to a financially very good place. Um, so that, so that it wasn't that dire that we needed to raise money. You know, that my joke, you know, the prettiest girl at the bar is the one who doesn't need to date anybody. And so that was important for me. And then the other is I was nurturing business development relationships with strategics as well as the fundraising. Um, and it, it wasn't because I had made a decision of which I wanted to do. It was more that I knew, um, heat would beget heat. And so I wanted the most option value on the table, which, you know, in, at this company, I have a very different, I've been approached about M&A and I, you know, have flat out turned people down because I have a different view of what I'm trying to do with this company. Um, but at Citrus Lane, I think it, it led to a really good outcome. You know, I made money for my investors, my employees did well, uh, and that mattered a lot to me. And we'll talk about Alum you know, which is your most recent company now. But I want to just say to, to wrap up this, this phase no, in your entrepreneurial journey, uh, when you had both, both term sheets or let's say the LOI and the, and the term sheet, why did you guys decide to go for the acquisition? 
It's such a good question. And I almost wish I had kept a diary because I, I'm not like, like I can't always figure, I can't always figure out why I decided it. Or even one thing I'm sure when you talk to people, like it's sometimes hard to know if you should or shouldn't have sold, um, cause the business was doing very well. Um, I think, um, in many ways, I believe that like under a bigger company, the company could grow faster. Um, but it was a really hard decision. And I, I don't, when people in the situation, everyone I talked to had a different opinion. Does that make sense? Like you would talk to one person, they're like, sell another person be like, no, take the term sheet and grow it. Uh, and I, I just felt like I was a little bit in a sea of opinions there. Um, and I'm happy with the decision we made. Uh, I do think it sets me up well that it's not the decision I would make the second time, but, uh, I think it's the first time decision. It, 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 a little bit set me up that I got a good solid, you know, hit to second and now I can go more for a grand slam. And what do you mean that uh, perhaps like if you, if you would have had the chance to go back in time, you maybe you would have gone with the series B term sheet. I never know. I'm not a huge person for regrets, but I think the truth is both of them were really good, viable outcomes and you'll never know the right answer. You know what I mean? Well, you know, your first company, you know, close to a $50 million exit, you know, very close to a 10x for investors. So I'm sure that, uh, you know, all your investors were happy. And I'm sure that also this this opened up, you know, like the, the you know, your chances of, of maybe like getting meetings, you know, like with people, with investors. So did that change a lot? It did. I mean, um, so first of all, my Series A investors in my last company are Series A investors in this company. So I... Uh, I have a very good relationship with them, and I think the world of them. Uh, that's uh, GGV. Uh, it did. I mean, selling the company helped. You know, I joined a public fashion board. I think having successfully sold a company helped with that. I started teaching as an adjunct at Stanford. I think it helped with that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I did it. I just, this time, it's really, what you hear from me, maybe I'm not explaining it well. What you hear from me is this, like, I want to prove I can take it all the way. Like, got it. That's in essence. Like I'm like a play JV, made money for everyone. I'm proud of that. But am I good enough to go big? That's that's in essence what you're probably hearing. That I'm not. And you're going. You're going well. big now. You're going yes. big now because yes, uh, you know definitely you you took your time to go at it again and and now finally you know after you know taking some time to teach at Stanford and to you know be part of different boards now you're doing it again with Alum. So how did you finally say to yourself, I am ready to go big. I am ready to go with Alum. This is the idea that I want to execute. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I was much more thoughtful. Last time I came out of eBay, all guns a blazing. Like I have this parenting idea. I have this insight. I did some focus groups with Palo Alto moms, which newsflash are not representative of America. And I raised money and got going. And this time, I, I knew that raising seed money would be pretty easy. Uh, in fact, I raised in four days. But um, so I wasn't, I did not want to use an investors as a proxy for whether my idea was good. So before even picking this idea, I did ad tests for like six months of, a, of probably like 25 different ideas. And I would just run ads to landing pages, to quizzes, to like get real world feedback. And then this is the idea that rose to the top of that testing and into the top of my interest. And so I spent three months where I bootstrapped the idea. I ran ads. I hired stylists on Yelp. I styled clients, interviewed the clients and did deals with brands. 
because I wanted to make sure before starting it that the model would work. It was very clear to me based on both how startups are in my nature that no matter what I picked, I was going to work like a dog. Like I just, I was going to live and breathe every single thing about making the company successful. So one of my insights is, well, if you're going to do that, you might as well pick a really big market and you should pick a model that really has the room to scale. So my last, you know, and so what I mean by that, my last business, we held inventory, we sent boxes, and this business is a pure marketplace where we actually do relationships with brands and brands drop ship. And so that was a key part of how to scale. Um, and we have a we have a really, really high take rate. And so I spent, I mean, I spent like three or four months figuring out would it work. And uh, my joke, my investment committee was actually my husband, who I love and supports me to the ends of the earth and is also a VC, um, but only last year, it's not then. And so I spent four months trying to prove to myself that I could make this a really good business. And then I went out and raised a seed round from True. Very nice. And obviously this time around, probably a little bit tougher because, you know, the, the other one, you know, was quite, you know, a straightforward while this one marketplaces, they are a little bit of a beast and it's like launching two companies at the same time. So how, how have you seen this experience for you, you know, building the marketplace? It's gone. So, so I was lucky enough to spend three years running the buyer side of eBay and all the categories. So I have a lot of marketplace experience. And, um, what's interesting about this company is it's amazing how well the marketplaces work. We've seen incredible consumer demand and stylist demand. Um, what's, this company has a lot more technology than my last company. And, and that was an explicit decision. My last company, we had a basic subscription system, but you know, mostly it was about how cute the packages were. Whereas this one, it's a hardcore data play of using like data routing and data algorithms to make the human styling have high gross margin. Uh, so I would say getting the double-sided marketplace to work has actually surprisingly been really easy. Um, most of what's been hard is we've built just sort of a ton of like kind of amazing technology around inventory systems and search and real-time unified checkout and order injection and recommendation engines. And so that's actually been a lot of where the heavy lifting was. So when you're thinking about the chicken and the egg, you know, which I always say that, especially when I was running my last company, that was also a marketplace that I wanted to shoot the chicken and step on the egg because I was getting tired from investors asking me about it. How, how did you go about addressing, you know, that supply demand? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So um, depending on how you want to think about it, you could argue we are a two or three-sided marketplace. So clients are, are busy professional women who use our service for personalized shopping. Uh, we have had easy, like demand for them has been really easy. Stitch Fix has helped us, you know, by being in market um, these professional women have tried it, but they want a product that's more personal, higher-end brands where they have more control. So we found user acquisition to be quite easy. On the stylist side, there is just so many people who studied fashion, love fashion, but work in parts of the country where there aren't that much opportunity. So we've seen, you know, like $0 CAC, largely unlimited demand to be a stylist. The scaling has more been making sure they're good enough, like picking, you know, their contractors, but picking good ones. And then on the brand side, um, the inside on the brand side is similar to Citrus Lane, where brands really need distribution and we're a performance-oriented channel. 
So as we've gotten bigger, we're seeing the same thing I saw in my last company where people are, they rate, they start their rates low, then they get a little taste of it, then they raise them. You know, and we just this week, we had one retailer who like refused to go to our like marquee rate and then finally came back yesterday. He's like, fine, fine. <laughs> like I'll go because, because we gave him some heat and then we took it away. You know, so we're helping brands by giving them, um, access to premium customers and driving sales for them. Um, so the thing that's tricky is the sides grow quickly, but you have to sort of moderate. Um, and the thing we've been really focused on, which I think is probably a reflection of my last company, is it's really important to me to run a business where the unit economics work. So over the last six months, we've had an incredible push to do a bunch of data-driven routing and styling that allows the service to be very personal and human to the client. But we're using a ton of kind of cluster-based routing to make sure that the service is quite profitable. And so that's actually what I'm most proud of is a really kind of hardcore focus on profit because I want to scale this into a really big company, but I, I don't love the VC model where you just scale, scale, scale and lose, lose, lose and lose money. It's more important to me that like the offering makes money. So Yeah. I mean, and I'm, yeah. we've obviously seen that mentality, you know, with, with marketplaces like Uber or even, you know, like what we've seen with WeWork, which was a complete disaster. So I think <laughs> that the mentality, I think, is, is, is also changing here. So I guess, you know, one of the questions that, that come to mind, Mariah, is that, you know, culture is, is super critical. And I'm sure that you learned, you know, a few things when you were building your, your previous company, Citrus Lane, uh, and perhaps, you know, like some key lessons that you took away with you uh, and that you are ap applying here, you know, to, to especially to building culture and that it are absolute must for you. What, what, what are those, you know, key things to really build a culture? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I teach this class to Stanford undergrads. Um, and one of the things we talk about is culture. And my belief is culture is actually what you reward and punish as an organization. It's not perks and bowling parties and bars in the office, none of which I really believe in. It's much more like as an organization, what do you make into heroes and what do you not allow to happen? And so for me, um, the culture is very much about like, we're really want to win. And so things I really believe in, we're super, super transparent. Um, and it's really important to me that we're all, we're really focused and we're building the right team. And this is going to seem a weird answer to culture because it's like the opposite of sounding sweet, but, but it'll probably tell you a little bit about me. Like when I hire a new exec, I actually tell them up front that I'm going to love them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to give them tons of respect. I'm going to help them throughout their career. But if it ever, they're ever not performing, I'm going to choose the company, including myself, if I'm not performing, because I think the number one thing in a startup you have to do is you need to make sure everyone is doing the things that make this business successful and you owe it. You owe it to your shareholders. You owe it to your other employees. So just having a culture that's more about like, we're on a mission to accomplish this and we're going to hold ourselves to a really high standard to get there. So, I mean, my, you know, people like Bezos, I admire a great deal. So we're, we're pretty hardcore is what I would say about our culture. Like, we're not, we're not that touchy-feely. We're pretty hardcore. Um, <laughs> Good stuff. I mean, you guys are obviously, you know, growing. How, how many people do you have now? We have um, 25 employees and about 100 contract stylists. 
Very nice. And you guys have raised uh, some money for this as well, right? Yeah, we've raised our seed round from True and our A round from was led by GGV, uh, who also did my A round in my last company. And of course, True participated. Yeah. So and I have like? chosen amazing investors. So I think the world of them. So is it like 10 million bucks or how much have you guys yeah, raised? about. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Very nice. And, you know, you were you were mentioning before that the... Um, that on your last company, you know, you you had, you know, your your first uh, child, you know, when, when you were building your, your previous company. So we have, I mean, here you are, you know, a successful mom, a successful wife, and then also a successful founder. Can you really have it all? You can. People always ask this and you totally <laughs> can. So uh, though my kids do complain that they have to, thought the last company was better because they got all these toys and, you know, but um <laughs> You can. I mean, I am incredibly blessed. Like I love my work, love it. Think about it all the time. And I love my family and you know, my, and I exercise a ton, but then I don't do anything else basically. Like I outsource all other stuff because I really mostly care about work, family and exercise. Uh, and you know, the other advice I give women, this is, I don't, I am actually really blessed to have an incredibly supportive spouse who, uh, is so supportive of my professional success. Uh, and that makes a huge difference. So, uh, and I also think there is no creature in nature more productive than the working mother. And and so I uh, I hire a lot of working moms, and they are just brutally efficient. So I love it. I love yeah. it. So I guess uh, you know, like obviously going going now, I wanna I wanna listen to to some of the stuff that you're seeing now, you know, and that you've seen, you know, from some of these incredibly smart students that you've had in in Stanford. I'm sure that many of them went out and. And, and really build incredible companies. So I guess, what are some of the patterns that you see on, on those students that, you know, go out and, and do incredible stuff? Yeah, I, um, you know, I've been lucky to see it both with my own students at Stanford and then like the Mayfield Fellow Program has built an incredible amount of companies. And, and, you know, I think there's a bunch of aspects to it. I mean, one, there's just a lot of hustle to build a good company. Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta have the fire and the belly to make it happen. Um, the other thing is you really have to have an area you really care about, you know, running a startup on a day-to-day -day basis is, um, I, I joke, it's a little like kids, any given day can be like, Oh my God, what's going on. But if you zoom up like a week or a month, you're like, Oh, it's growing up. It's getting better. And so you have to love the space you're in to wake up every day and be fully energized to go for it. And so the ones, and you know, and it's, it is a privilege to teach the Stanford CS students. Uh, they are so smart and energetic and wonderful. And they do pitch me on their seed stuff all the time. I give seed advice, but um, just having the kind of urge to make it happen. And then an area you love, and then you have to be an incredible listener. Like running a startup is really humble. And the best ideas in all my startups were not ideas that I came up with. It was in essence, listening to what my users were doing. And then changing what I'm doing to match to that. And you know, it's interesting that you 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 talked about seed advice. And you know, when you are a founder, it's it's very important that you're able to filter through the advice and get the advice from the right advisor. So how do you filter through the noise as a founder to get the right type of advice? Yeah, I you know, I mostly I actually don't seek a ton of advice outside of my board and my own advisors. I have some incredible advisors. Um, um, the longtime CEO of Neiman's, the executive producer of Project Runway. Um, but, you know, one of the privileges to have been on an independent on a startup board, to have been on a public board, to do a second time founder, is my board is really helpful. So I actually most, I mean, I 
kind of force them to give really crisp and clear advice. And I rely on it a lot. Um, I think one of my takeaways is I don't go out and seek a ton of other advice. Like I'm looking at the data. I think my executives know the business really well. And I'm actually, I think the most important source of data for me is the, I mean, hard, we're really hardcore data analytics culture is what our customers are telling us. Like some of our best, I'll give you an example. Um, so we offer online personal styling, like concierge shopping. Uh, but a huge, but a growing portion of our business is coming from people just doing self-service shopping. Like, and it came from clients. They kept saying, hey, I really love that. Can I buy the jumpsuit? And first we're like, get styled. And eventually we're like, well, why don't we just put the look on the site? And now that's a huge part of our business. That's 100% gross margin. And it's basically because we just listen to our clients. So for me, most of the advice I care about is coming from my board, my executives, and it's in the data. Like I'm listening to what our users and our brands and our stylists are saying. That's amazing. Build on data rather than on assumptions. So that's a, that's really fantastic. So Mariah, for the um, you know, I'm sure that the that the folks that are listening probably want to hear the question that I typically ask the guests that that come on the show, and that is that if you had the opportunity, knowing everything that you know now because you've been at it, you know, in every single aspect of a corporation, whether it's large, whether it's small, whether it's something that you've started from nothing, you know, you you've really learned, you know, your 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 fair amount. So. If you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self, Mariah, with that younger Mariah, perhaps that was about to launch your first business, Citrus Lane, what would be that piece of advice that you would give to yourself uh, before launching a business and why? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think the number one thing I would tell myself is um, think really carefully and be do a great job building the team. You know, having run the businesses at various stages, nothing is more clear to me that when you're fielding a really good team, everything's easier. Like, yeah, it's still hard and there's struggles, but if you're surrounded with people who are just really good at what they do, working together, the whole thing goes a lot faster and easier. Uh, And the reason that one's hard for me is I'm always so excited to get started. Like I always want to rush. And I think just taking the time to build the very best team all of my history says that that gives you the best outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess for the folks that are listening that are like, oh my God, you know, how do I get in touch with Mariah or how do I know more about her new business? Say what, how, how can they reach out and say hi? Yeah. So um, you can reach out on Twitter or you could reach out on LinkedIn uh, and I'd be happy to chat. Amazing. Well, Mariah, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.